This ticker podcast is coming to you from the Citadel Securities Trading Post on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Hi, everyone. As corporate valuations soared ever higher, 2019 was supposed to be a great year for IPOs. But it wasn't. Instead, the shares of many newly listed companies languished. Other firms postponed their listing plans. What went wrong? And what will it take for a company to successfully enter public markets this year? My guests at the Post today drop by to help answer those questions. Patricia Grau is director at Brunswick Group. She's worked on a slew of initial public offerings, including those of Facebook and Alibaba. Grau says stock market splashes in 2020 will all have three things in common. And we'll find out what those are right now. Let's dive in. Patricia Grau, welcome to the Ticker Podcast. Thank you, Jeff. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. What's wrong with equity markets and, and, and why aren't IPOs doing any better? Um, I think a couple things are at play here. I think the first is, if we just all back up a second, it is enormously hard to go public. You have to, a company's management and their advisors have to uh, learn how to play a different sport as they continue to play another sport. So it's like learning to play basketball and you're playing baseball at the same time. So what does that mean? You have to completely, I think, to go public successfully, you have to... There's a lot of preparation that goes in. You have to tell, refine, and tell a story and a narrative that will land well with the public markets. Many times it's a different narrative than what you've been telling to your private investors for years. And third and most important, you have to get to know and convince public equity investors to invest and take a risk on your company. And that is very, very difficult and very, very different. And the other thing that I always think about with IPOs is that you kind of can't go back. Like once you go public, you're public. It's really hard to go put yourself back in the box. Although they are doing it more and more. They are doing it. but And of course we saw um, at least one company withdraw um, from pricing, you know, a couple hours before pricing today, uh, before pricing in September. But there's, you know, if you, once you go public, it's very hard. I mean, to go private again is quite difficult and usually involves quite a bit of debt. Um, so I think, you know, that's one thing that I, I, I'm very much admire companies who are trying to go public because it is such a difficult process, which is why so many of them delay and wait and to, to do it. Um, and also why today we have more private equity-backed companies in the U.S. than public companies. So I think that's one thing. I think I did not know that. Yes. So it's a, it's a McKinsey statistic. Um, but it's something that uh, is, is extremely important. So it also... I also think, though, um, some of the things that's also happened this year is you had a number of companies that... What would you say? The American reading public, the global investing community has long anticipated to go public. Uber, Lyft, um, Airbnb, which did not go public this year. These are companies that for a lot of us are names that we, companies we know and use every day. 
um, we've read about in the newspaper for years. There's you know, been reporters at the Wall Street Journal who've had their whole beats dedicated to them for years. So long anticipated, and from an investor perspective, long anticipated as well. Because as we all know, um, investors are a lot of times looking for growth. Tech companies in particular have been going faster. Overall, if you looked at tech public tech companies, their rates of revenue growth, annual rates of revenue growth over the last like three, five, seven years have been more like 10 to 20 percent. So, you know, investors are always looking for growth. They were anticipating, and you know, most public companies overall, their their rate, their top line growth rates are more like five to seven percent. So, you know, they're looking for growth. So, it's long anticipated these companies would come to the market and have a great. Um, so great run. So I think there's there's a piece of that as well. So anticipation. I, I don't want to lose your thought, but can I back up? I thought I thought that was the problem with with these companies. They they would li- they wouldn't have any revenues. There was no growth. So I think well, I look on it as I have a different take on it. The companies that I saw that we were that so many of us were the headline companies of uh, had had growth rates of healthy growth rates of at least 10, 20, 30, 50, even 100 percent. Pinterest, you know, revenues doubling every year. That said, they did not have profitability. And so I think this is this is the other thing. If you were saying these companies were long anticipated, they almost were like so cool, they couldn't get any cooler to investors. And so they were almost set up to fail in oh. some ways. They've been public for, they've been private for so long. But as I also think there's something that happened with investor expectations for profitability. And I think is also extremely important here. You can say that, um, market conditions changed or um, I personally think there's a you know the mismatch between like what public equity investors and what private equity investors expect for for profitability was not really fully explored in the markets and that's a substance problem as well as an investor narrative problem it's not just what you do but how you talk about it what is your what is your runway to profitability I also think there's a bit of market conditions changing where um, if you looked at surveys by banks and consulting firms of the outlook for the economic cycle, CFO, CEO sentiment, it's long been expecting a growth slowdown. I do think people became nervous again throughout the year, particularly into the summer. And since they were more nervous about you know, market conditions changing and the economic cycle changing and recession coming, they became worried not just about growth, they became very worried about profitability and operating sustainability and could a management team actually of a public, newly public company, and could that management team actually weather a recession and a change in the management cycle? Because as we all know, we all have been around when a recession happens is during the financial crisis. It's not, you've got to be able to manage your operations and your financials sustainably through a recession. And I do think some of these public equity investors looked at some of these companies with amazing growth, but low profitability and no sustained path to profitability and thought and questioned whether or not these companies could really get through uh, a turn in the economic cycle, a multi-year turn in the economic cycle, and a, a very strong slowdown in global growth. Did they have the equipment and the capability to get through it? So I think, you know, long anticipate, so anticipate, huge anticipation for these companies, a um, change in market conditions, as well as a mismatch in expectations around profitability that I think is is very critical and very important. I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole also, but a recession comes up, is that going to, how, how will that affect the private market? Will it make 
public markets more attractive in a recession or the opposite? You know, I guess it's such an interesting topic. I think, I mean, the first thing with I think of with private markets is two things. Number one, the the credit markets will change so much as we all like. You know, credit markets are like the harbinger of recession coming. And if companies, we have a there's a ton of a private, large private companies that are not profitable, and they need to they they have to turn to the credit markets at least periodically, or their private investor owners have to turn to the credit markets periodically to finance their debt. If those credit markets close, then yes, one of the possibilities would be for those companies to go to the equity markets, right? But how hard will that be, right? Because again, we have transparent equity markets. So all of investors, analysts, everyone is going to know this company couldn't take out debt. So now they're turning to you know, the public markets to raise capital. And that'll be super tough on valuations. And it's a super start hard story for an investor relations um, a leader to tell um, and to engage with investors over. The equity, the uh, debt markets uh, snubbed us and, and now we're coming to you. <laughs> that's, Ta-da. It, yeah, that's, that's just so difficult. And, um, and as well, there's of course a bit of a, um, there's communication between the, the, between credit investors and equity investors, right? So, you know, there's some there's some ability they will know what is happening. And there's been this summer we saw um, some large issuances, of, uh, some large debt issuances in the leveraged loan markets, in particular, hit rocky shoals. So, like July, August, September, you saw five or six big debt issuances in the market um, run into trouble. Not huge trouble, but run into some trouble. Enough trouble to make Bloomberg headlines, to have you know financial credit reporters actually publish articles in the journal and Bloomberg. Right as that's happening, you have a pause in the IPO markets. Well, everybody waits for WeWork. So I do think that really affected, to go back to your question about what happened, I think that was People took that as a signal that the market conditions were changing as well. Getting some breaking news on WeWork. Archetype we WeWork. Unicorn. He has now really quite understands the business model. Pulling its huge IPO, issues the huge issues. Record now. The I don't want WeWork. I mean, I don't want WeWork at any point. WeWork was kind of the, the fulcrum that everything kind of turned on. I, I, I believe WeWork, particularly the, the content in its S1 was not what someone closely following the company necessarily expected. And so I, and of course the markets do not like to be surprised. And I do think that um, people took stock of what was happening at that moment. September is always tricky with the markets as we sit here in this amazing New York Stock Exchange. We know that. You know, September, everybody comes back to summer vacation, takes a look at their portfolio, thinks about what they're going to do at the end of the year. It's always a tricky time. And what was so fascinating about WeWork was that um, at that time, you know, the public, the markets were up, but active investors were, um, were, not, were not having a great year. And so two things were going to happen, broadly speaking, and was either they were going to go hard on to risk and go into a WeWork, no matter what the numbers said, or they would completely come off. Okay. Um, and I think, um, I do think some of the, the financials, the, the situation with WeWork was a very difficult one. I also think the narrative, what was, how the story was told was just at a time when investors were potentially more skeptical about 
what was happening. You, the you know the CEO letter spoke of the company's mission as elevating consciousness. So just as investors are focusing on profitability and hard numbers and thinking about watch you know thinking about market conditions and slowing global growth, you have a mission and a, a sort of overall investment engagement approach that. That, there's a mismatch there that was very interesting to. There's just too much story there, is that, and, and not enough numbers. I think there's. I think the story was a story that didn't match necessarily what their investors wanted to hear at that time or were looking for. And I, I think also, Jeff, this leads to kind of a just that difference of, of public equity investors in an IPO, right? So, you know, average holding time period for an public investor is what eight months like an institutional investor these days at most it's eight months of so that's very different than you know a, a late stage private companies investor base which is usually a, you know, investors who are holding the company for years um, you know and if you're a portfolio manager at a public equity company you're maybe you've got 80 to 100 stocks in your portfolio you've got um, maybe some analysts who help you think about things and they're um, they're not they're spending they even if you meet with the CEO and many testing the waters meetings they've got hundreds of companies on their radar screen and that they're thinking about they also have a set of incentives that's very different so I do think there was somewhat of a mismatch of how to engage how to approach those, what story to tell, what narrative to deploy with them, and how to deploy with them that that was occurring there. I'm not saying it wasn't occurring with a lot of the different companies that we saw, you know, in the last year or two. This was just the, the apex in some ways. Near the session lows for Uber stock, it's down about nine percent in trading today. Do private investors know something more now, we were or less some of the than the public market? Investors have if it has five no years cash to wait flow, for something to turn yeah. profitable because look how great it worked for Jeff Bezos. Like concretely, why did uh, Uber flop? <laughs> so I personally think Uber is an example of a long anticipated. IPO like could how however could how could that IPO ever have been successful? They had two hundred thousand private investors. So they basically, in some ways, were already operating like a private co- public company without a public company, without some of the transparencies needed. It's just so difficult for them to be successful coming onto the market because if you were if you were with two hundred thousand investors, if you were looking at that company, you. It's hard. You're, you struggle to understand how there's going to be any money on the table, money for you, how there's going to be future growth, a future fast, good return for you. What, they just didn't explain that story? I think, I think it was a very, very challenging. I, I think that's somewhat is a communications issue, but and definitely there's a piece of that. But the biggest communications issue being convincing investors that they're actually new investors, there'd be a substantive return for them. So, because if you looked at that company, you, you would see that with 200,000 institutions in the stock already, they've probably already gotten all of the amazing return that could be generated. Was, was, was there going to be a return, really, for them going forward? And then second, on the messaging component, you know, that path to profitability, convincing in. Nope. Convincing those already skeptical investors, they're already skeptical about the potential return, 
that indeed there's going to be a return for them possible, that there's going to be profitability, there's going to be cash for them, that the business model actually has, you know, legs long term is, is, is an enormous challenge. So that's the lesson we learned from last year. Figuring again a bit, but as we've been speaking, uh, 10 bazillion shares have just traded hands and it's all index funds and stuff. What's the, uh, what's the effect of that on, on the IPO market? I mean, it's, I think it's more than, I don't even know what the number is, but it's, it's taking over the market, right? Totally. Yeah. It totally is. It's what, like, I think the last numbers I saw were 2018, 2017, you know, index funds or passive investors made up 37% like a, of an, on average, like, you know, stocks, um, Huh. public share base yeah, and I'm, it's, I think it's probably even more and more as we know it's such an interesting issue I think the first is if you're an active investor you wonder what's going to happen with passive investors in a market downturn we've never gone through a market downturn with passive investors having such substantial shareholdings of a company's shareholder base so this is very different from 10 years ago. And so I do think there's, that causes some anxiety in itself um, That's because of the difference. The second thing I think is that they have, you know, as your readers, all of us know and have read what Larry Fink has written, what different um, leaders at Vanguard have written over the years, like those passive investors are in the stock no matter what, for good or bad, and they care more about ESG issues. Um, and they care about the economic, social, and the governance all the same. And so I do think those come to the fore in ways that are different than perhaps five, six, seven years ago with newly public companies. And, that, um, and they also engage very, very differently they, um, with companies coming onto the market. So there's, they have things that they care about, but they're not necessarily as open with um, a company coming public as, they, as perhaps some of the other active actively traded active investors are, actively managed fund managers are. And the upshot of that is in our upcoming recession and prevalence of index funds, the outlook for IPOs in 2020. We don't want to do what they did in 2019. What are they going to do different that's going to bring back the market? Well, so first of all, I still think there's quite a few that I think there will still be a market for well-managed uh, strongly growing, um, profitable or close to profitable companies. Um, there will be a market for an I, there will be an IPM market. I do think um, there's still a great deal of interest um, any uh, from investors in newly public companies. That has not that has not necessarily changed. In terms of, I, I do think there's a a need to think about um, the narrative for public equity investors and how to reach those investors with that narrative um, more, um, maybe in a more targeted and in a way that lands well with them. Um, I, I, I think there's less about assuming that um, broad statements that a company will be profitable, um, that uh, that just that just reaching investors kind of um, through some of the traditional ways may not work as well. Um, I do think that a lot of us are going to, of course, watch the global growth outlook. I think we all know that what happens between the U.S. and China will also be very important from a transactions perspective. 
you know, U.S.-China transactions are investing is, is, is difficult right now, so it's one thing. But just as important is um, the changing sentiment um, between these two countries, um, not just the trade dispute, of course, there's been there's a lot of news on the trade dispute, but on, I think we've got some survey data that says um, 60% of American consumers want um, their American CEOs to take a stand on China. You know, uh, the flip side is um, something around two-thirds of Chinese consumers um, say that they have boycotted an American product um, in China in the last year. Something around 40 to 50 percent have changed international travel plans not to include America in the last year or will tell a survey um, wow. Somebody surveying them. So there's a lot of different ramifications from an investor perspective for That's that. That's a real as brand well. issue. I it's mean, a real brand yeah. issue, and um, there's a, there's uh, there's I mean Hank Paulson just has made some statements warning against like you know the pulling apart of China and the U.S. economically um, just you know in the last week or so. So there's a lot there's a lot to think about between these two countries, their capital markets, um, the investing community as well as, like, a company's operations. Like, um, I think a lot of American, you know, China is a huge source of growth um, as well as of profitability for American companies. And it's a huge driver of global growth and global prosperity as well, as is the United States. So I think there's quite a bit there to think about and will be very interesting. Um, and the third, of course, piece would be the political season in the United States and, and how all of that plays out. And, you know, on a, I think, um, and the expectations on CEOs and on companies to navigate the political, that political season as well. So, and of course that's super challenging for an IPO, for a company trying to go public. You're already media catnip as you try to emerge onto the public markets, and then you have the overlay of political season, as well as China politics, as well as global growth to think about. So it'll be really fascinating to see what happens. But I do think there's quite a bit of preparation in terms of messaging and communications and in smart investor narrative to think about in terms of growth and profitability at this time. It's a communications minefield. It's a, it's a, a new dawn in communications. Uh, it's, it's, I think there's it something happening and a lot of people don't know what it is kind of thing right yes. now. And that's why these things are flopping. Yes, I think that. And I also think that one of the things I've learned a ton about since I was an analyst and with, of the evolution of the last couple of years is how people find information and the expectations of where they're going to find information. So um, as an analyst, I was I used to laugh that I was like a professional Googler. I spent so much time Googling things, searching for things, turning up things on Google. That is absolutely still important. That is still the number one way that investors and analysts find their information and make decisions. Full stop. But it's also true that you know, there's a growing expectation among investors and analysts that you know, a CEO engages on social media. We, we have survey data that shows that like half of investors and analysts um, expect a CEO to be on digital media. That's that's investors and analysts. That's not you know the American public. So they are looking. They expect a CEO of a public company to be out like on LinkedIn, on on some kind of social media channel, speaking to them or speaking to the broader public of some kind. 
So meet with, I think what's also changed, we talked about the mismatch of a narrative. What's also changed is how investors are finding information, what information sources they trust. Of course, Google's always first, but then, you know, um, the Journal and the Financial Times are also very trusted. Some of the top news hosts are very trusted. So is Wikipedia more and more. Um, and huge numbers of investors under 30, which to me means a hedge fund analyst, are looking at um, social media channels in depth for information on stocks and making decisions on stocks based on that as well, which is very much surprised to me. So I do think that that change as well is something for companies to think about. And if you're going public, there's all these rules about going public, right? You know, are lots and lots of regulations about how you talk to investors and when you talk to them. The more advanced work you can do around your website and your social media channels months ahead of going public, the better. And there's more and more sophisticated ways to target investors, to target potential investors, to target your analysts um, on social media so that when you do go public, they have already a baseline understanding of your company's business model and proposition. So that's been that's also part of the new dawn. I think it's not just the message and the marketing additions, but the information sources that um, that people are expecting. I've been writing about it this for ten years, social media, and 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 still, I came across a, a statistic, something like I don't know, fifty percent of companies, big companies, aren't on social media, or if they are, it's like you know LinkedIn or just one kind of channel or something. Yes, and and this it's it's actually an expectation. So our digital investor survey results show that that half of our respondents that would be investors and analysts expect CEOs to be on social media. It is not they're happy for a company to maybe have a Twitter account. There's an expectation. And so, and that is very, the earlier that a company thinks about that, you know, late stage private company, the better. Because going public is just so much work. You have a 400 page document to produce. You have new investors to go out and meet. You've got presentation materials for them as well. There's just a there's a ton of media attention almost always on neat public companies. There's a ton to do. So the more you can do some of the advanced work on not just the narrative, but on the the channels that you'll reach, right. reach investors, the better. Um, and and with in partnership with communications, investor relations, and the company's leadership, the better. Patricia, what's the downside of a direct listing? So I think they're completely fascinating, and there's tons of upside in terms of a company's ability to actually, you know, very strongly control its emergence onto public stock markets. The downside is that the burden is so much more on the company to recruit its investors, to tell the right um, story to investors, to engage those investors, and that can be very, very hard. Um, so it means instead of having, you know, a, a bank put together a roadshow schedule of all of your investor meetings, you yourself many times are sort of leading the way to figure out how to find target and educate those investors and convince them to invest in the company. And that can be, that's quite, it's quite a lift. And the second, of course, is that it's, it's, a lot of times are not raising capital or no capital yeah. at that point at least with the or you never are right with the offering with an IPO you can raise capital a direct listing though yeah direct listing you never are right. so yeah. maybe you can you know with the secondary the you know another offering you know six months down the road but not with that hmm. so it's, it's quite a bit so run that there. by me again the downside is you uh, have to 
the biggest downside I see is you have to target and educate investors largely, much more yourself. You're a bank, an underwriter. Your underwriters are not nearly as involved in thinking through how to target and find your investors. This might be a good thing, right? It could be a good thing, but the best bankers are wonderful storytellers and have a really strong understanding of what investors are looking for from a public company, what message they need, what data and facts they need, as well as how to give that information, provide that information to investors in what form, in what sense, what place, time that makes sense for them. So there's much more of a burden with a direct listing on the company itself for that. But they go out and they get a consultant and they basically perform the functions of an investment bank without the um, uh, biases. <laughs> Potentially, but the, the, I think there is such strong expertise in banks for this type of thing that is very, with for um, targeting and educating investors and the best bankers are incredible storytellers. They're incredible financial storytellers. It also means that, like, basically a company, while still, for a direct listing, and Spotify did this to great success, they have to almost on their own put on an investor day for the first time as a private company. So the meetings and things that need to happen, you know, you've got to find some way to educate investors. A lot of times one of the most efficient ways to do that is the equivalent of an investor day or a great big, huge investor meeting. They have to do that almost by themselves come up with the material, rehearse, um, figure out what they're going to say, where they're going to say it, and make sure that it's as authentic to the company as possible. This would be even before the, the yeah. list. Yeah, because you've, you've got to find investors who will buy your stock when it starts trading on a direct listing. So it's much more, because of the process, it's much more on the company to do that than you know, the underwriters are not as involved. Because they're not underwriting. They're just advising as banks, so it's a direct listing. So it's a much bigger burden. So is it cheaper? It's cheaper. Yeah, oh yes, it it's absolutely cheap. cheaper. Yeah. It's okay. absolutely cheaper. It's absolutely cheaper. There's more work to do on the company itself though, on this investor engagement piece, and that that is that is it's a very complicated task, and it's critical. So it's kind of your task, though, isn't it? It can that, it can be. That's what um, you do. So we we do that, and we also work in partnership a lot of times with with bankers and lawyers on okay. IPOs as well. So, but we have worked on direct listings, and and they are great fun because they are the opportunity for a company. A direct listing allows a company to really reveal itself and its way of doing things. So um, this is very. Um, much the case with Spotify and Slack. You got really a sense from the direct listing of who they were and how they were going to engage, you know, who, who stood in the room um, and who presented for the investor meeting. So, and those were, of course, public. Anybody could go to them. So, very different than a roadshow. So much of an IPO for a direct listing is, um, is an introduction to public stock market and to public equity investors. And so figuring out how to speak their language, how to play their game, how to meet them where they are becomes extremely important. And the more understanding there is that that game is different than the private capital game, the better. And that's a wrap. My thanks to Patricia Grau. Find Brunswick's latest white paper on crafting a compelling investor thesis at irmagazine.com. And while you're there, I note you'll also find a fairly robust library of white papers on IPO communications in general. 
I'm Jeff Cassette, and thanks for listening. Citadel Securities is a member of FINRA and SIPC. The content of this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Citadel Securities.